good evening. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, if you're watching, feel free to join in and worship tonight. It's always good to worship. God is so worthy of our praise day and night. Amen. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do.
This is my desire to honor you.
Amen. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the truth of the word. It's a sure foundation for us. And we thank you, Father, for making your word available to us so that we can know who you are and therefore know who we are in Christ. I thank you, Father, for direction and for utterance tonight in the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. I want to start tonight in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 10. It's a scripture that I hope all of you are familiar with. You certainly should be, in my opinion. Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Every time the Lord appears to one of his servants in the Old Testament, and almost every time in the New Testament, he always, whether it's Jesus himself or an angel, they always open their greetings or whatever they're going to say by telling them not to fear. When Paul was on the ship in the middle of the worst storm that any of the sailors, professional sailors had experienced, an angel stood by Paul and said, fear not, Paul. And then he told him about how important it was for him to go to Jerusalem and stand before Caesar. One of the greatest truths that I think we miss in the modern day church world is God's desire for us to live without fear. It's the thing that set Jesus apart from anybody and everybody that we see throughout the Bible. Jesus was absolutely fearless because he knew who he was. And he wants us to be the same as he, as he was and as he is. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Be not dismayed. This word dismayed means confounded or broken down. In other words, don't ever come to the point where you say, what are we going to do now? Because he is our God. When we feel weak and helpless, he says he strengthens us. When we need help, he says he will help us. And then it says he will uphold us with the right hand of his righteousness. Folks, we live in a day we're in the middle of an experience that our country has never known before. And so much of it is, is driven, so much of what is taking place and what is going on around us is driven by the fear of man. We've seen and heard projections. I think the, the latest toll, death toll from this coronavirus is somewhere around 13,000. And we certainly don't want to speak in any way that diminishes those 13,000. That's too many for anything. But there are a lot of things that take place in our everyday lives and in the world that we live in that takes a lot more lives than that just as a normal course of human activity. 
But there's something about what's going on now that's driven by the spirit of fear and has created a situation for us or around us that's exactly what Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost to talk about when he wrote to Timothy and talked about the perilous times of the last days. Now, the Bible gives us some examples. It's nothing new. The devil doesn't have anything new. He's using the same things that he's always used. And the Bible gives us some wonderful examples for us to follow. One of these examples is in Numbers chapter 13. It's something that took place when the children of Israel came to the edge of the promised land. I'm going to start in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Now notice verse 2. God is instructing Moses to send men. He's going to wind up sending 12 guys, one for each of the tribes of Israel. He's going to send men to search the land of Canaan. But notice God reiterates what he said over and over and over again which I give unto the children of Israel. So whatever the purpose for the children of Israel, these 12 spies to go and, and take a look at the land, whatever the purpose was had nothing to do with whether or not it was theirs. God has already established that it's theirs. He's given it to them. Yet he tells Moses to send men in to search the land of Canaan. Again, he said, which I give unto the children of Israel, of every tribe of the fa their fathers shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, send them, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. Then it gives us the names of everybody. I don't want to stop and read that. So let's skip down to verse 17. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land. Notice this phrase. And see the land what it is. And see the land what it is. He wants them to see the physical circumstances of this land. He wants them to come back and report what they saw. As far as the people, as far as the fruitfulness of the land is concerned, this is at the commandment of the Lord. So the Lord wants us or wants them to see the land that he has promised and said was already theirs. Verse 18 again, it says, And see the land what it is, that the people be, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. And what the land is, second time he says it, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that dwell in, that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. Here's the third time he says it. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage and bring the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first striped grapes. Let's stop and talk about this for a minute. A lot of times people confess or people confuse the characteristics of faith. And here, what I mean by that is the Bible says that Abraham imitated God by calling things that be not as though they were. 
God calls things that are, are not as though they are. One example is right here where we just read, God has already told the children of Israel that he's given them the land. So whatever they go to spy out in this land has no bearing on what God has already promised to do. As I said, Abraham was an imitator of God. One way that he imitated God was he called things that be not as though they were. A lot of times people confuse that or get that mixed up because they try to confess things that are as though they are not. In other words, they overlook the circumstances or deny the circumstances trying to get to some place of faith. I've seen people, perhaps you have as well, people that deny the fact that sickness is attached itself to their bodies and try to believe that something that is there is not. But nowhere does faith deny the circumstance. God's not making what they see in the land conditional on what he has given to them. He doesn't say, for example, we took some extra time when Moses came down from the mountains with the Ten Commandments and you guys had done that golden calf thing, so we're running behind schedule. And if we haven't made it on time or made things just at the right time, then all bets are off and the land's not going to be yours after all. There is nothing that they can see. There is nothing that they can witness that changes the fact that God said the land was theirs. Nothing. No walls around any cities like the walls of Jericho. No size of the enemy armies. No amount of weaponry. Or if their army is on horseback. There's nothing. There is no circumstance. Absolutely nothing that can change the fact that God said the land was theirs. So this is not a fact-finding mission for God. But it is a fact-finding mission for the children of Israel. So you've got one, these 12 guys, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason God wants them to go in and see what the land was all about, see what the land is. The reason that God sent them forth to do just that is because even though God has made the promise of the land to them, he said it's already theirs. It's still going to take faith to make that happen. I think one of the things that, that uh, a lot of people in the modern day church world get tied up with is that they think that if it's the will of God for something to happen, it's just going to happen. But the Bible says, James told us in the first chapter of the letter that he wrote to the church, James says, without faith, it's impossible to receive from God. So even though God has made the promise of the promised land, declared that it's theirs as far as he was concerned, in the mind of God, it was already done. It's just a matter of going in and occupying the land. Even though God's will is that they take the land, even though God has made provision, he's spoken the words to make provision for them taking hold of the land, he's not just going to throw it on them unless they want it and take hold of it themselves. It's going to take faith on their part. We see over and over again in the scriptures how that the Bible tells us that Jesus could in, in uh, several places, one in particular was his own hometown of Nazareth, 
even though he was anointed to heal the blind and uh, bring people out of captivity, deliver them, and so forth, if they did not mix faith with what he was empowered to do, it wouldn't work for them. And it didn't work for them. He couldn't there in Nazareth do no mighty work. He wanted to. He said he was anointed to. It was the will of God for them, the people of that city, to receive just as the people in Capernaum had received a little bit of time before. But it takes faith. It takes faith in what God has said to cooperate with him so that which he has promised and that which he has declared comes to pass. So these guys, as far as God is concerned, these guys are going in to spy out the land to come back with the report of what things are, what are the circumstances concerning the cities and the people that live in them and so forth, not to see if they want to take it, but so that they can mix faith with what God has already promised. Verse 21, so they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob as the men came to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron where three guys, the children of Anak were. I'm not going to try to say their names. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came into the brook of Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bare it between two men upon a staff and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook Eskel because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whether thou sentest us and surely it flows with milk and honey and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Now, folks, that word nevertheless means but. They're coming back and giving a true and accurate account of the fruit of the land. But now something has taken place, something they have witnessed during these 40 days of searching out the land. They've witnessed something that changes everything about their mindset and everything about what they think that Israel should do. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea by the coast of Jordan. Now, we won't take time to do this but beginning with when Moses was talking with God when he was in the presence of the burning bush and God was telling him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. That's about two and a half years, maybe a little bit more than that from this time in Numbers chapter 13. That It estimates... Scholars estimate that it took about two and a half years from the deliverance from Egypt to when they got to the edge of the promised land. 
So however long the plagues and the, the ten plagues took place, we don't know, but that would be added on to about two and a half years. Beginning at the time when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh, he's told him about this promised land, and Moses tells the people about the promised land that God has provided for them. He tells them that the Amalekites are there. He tells them that the Hittites are there. He tells them that the Canaanites are there. He tells them about the children of Anak. This was not a surprise to anybody when they say that all these people were there and they found them dwelling in the cities. One of the things that I think is important for us to see is that, folks, things are what they are. In every situation, it is what it is. It may not be what we want it to be. The circumstances of life may not be as pleasant or as enjoyable as we might like them to be. But whatever it is, it is. Things are what they are. And God knows that. God's not put off or bothered or worried about whether or not the children of Anak or anybody else has strengthened their defenses. None of that stuff matters as far as God is concerned. God's word is true. His word is always true, and his word cannot be broken. At least on his end, it can't be. And so there's nothing that they could see there. There's nothing that they could report back to the children of Israel that changes in even the slightest way the fact that God said he had given them the promised land. It doesn't matter how many cities have walls around them. It doesn't matter if the Amalekites are there and the Canaanites and the children of Anak. It doesn't matter how they're living, whether they're living in tents or whether they're living in walled cities. None of that makes any difference whatsoever. But the children of Israel didn't understand that. They didn't accept that to be the truth. Verse 30 and Caleb stilled the people before Moses. The people are starting to get agitated. Now, what are they starting to get agitated about? All that the children of Israel have heard from these ten spies, ten of them came back with an evil report. Caleb and Joshua came back with a good report. They all saw exactly the same thing, but you've got two diametrically opposed reports that are being offered and shared with the people of Israel. Now, when these guys come back and start talking about all the, the enemies that are there, it starts to agitate the people. Fear sets in. You may recall over in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to direct the children of, of uh, to direct the church that he writes to. To be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Then he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles means deceitfulness. But it has a root meaning that's even more important. The word literally means to travel over. So where it says, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the traveling over of the devil. It's simply telling us that the devil has one and only one way to operate against mankind. And that one way is to influence him and to deceive him, which is exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. Started with 
the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But one of the greatest tools he has and that he uses to influence man to speak or to act contrary to God's word, which is to act contrary to his own best interest, is fear. Peter told the church, as he was inspired by the Holy Ghost, that your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion. The devil wants to make as much noise as he can about anything and everything because he wants to instill fear in the heart of every believer. Because if he can get them operating in fear, he can keep them from operating in faith. And if he can keep us from operating in faith, then he can rob us of God's greatest blessings. Because as James tells us, without faith it's impossible to receive from God. So Caleb steals the people. Fear is beginning to set in. So Caleb calmed things down and said, wait a minute, hold on a second. Let's look at this thing the way that God wants us to. He stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb hasn't seen anything. He saw the same thing the ten spies saw, but he hasn't seen anything that's greater than God. He hasn't seen anything that would keep God's word from being true or God's promise to give them the land to be made null and void. Besides that, if we're going to think just naturally and just according to the ways of the earth, the children of Anak, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Canaanites put together weren't as great a military force as the armies of Egypt. And God destroyed them on behalf of the, for the benefit of the children of Israel, and they never even had to throw a rock. So Caleb steals the people and says, let's go get it. Not because we're so strong, but because God is on our side. But the ten spies had something to answer to that. But the men that went up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Now, folks, I would submit to you that that's a true statement. The people in the promised land were stronger than the children of Israel. But God didn't say that the land would be theirs because they would be stronger than their enemies. God said the land was theirs because he gives it to them. Caleb understood that as well as Joshua, but not the other ten. Verse 32, and they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, here's the evil report. The evil report was what they said. They said, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. They saw themselves as too weak to take the land. But that's not what we find out the people inside the promised land thought. Because after 40 years, after wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and the next generation comes to this very same point, this very same place, and Joshua sends two spies in to search out the land, 
they get to the city of Jericho, talk to Rahab the harlot, and she reveals what the people in the land, the people in the city of Jericho particularly, have been thinking and saying for the last 40 years. They still remember about God parting the Red Sea for the children of Israel. They recognize that a God that would do that was too much for any army to overcome. They knew that the land was the Israelites. They knew. They've been wondering what's, what's happened to you guys for 40 years. So they weren't looking at the children of Israel the same way that Israel was seeing itself. Let's go over into chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, and they know that God's on their side, if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord. Notice this next phrase. Neither fear ye the people of the land. Well, we see what the ten spies were operating on now, don't we? They were afraid of the people in the land. But Caleb and Joshua said, Only rebel not against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us, and their defense is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. This identifies what the whole congregation of Israel is doing. There seems to be this mass hysteria that's being stirred up. And in the minds of the ten spies, this mass hysteria, this fear that begins to creep into the hearts of everyone other than Caleb and Joshua, there may have been others that are on the side of God, but the congregation believes the majority report, and they begin to operate in fear. Verse 10, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and will disinherit them and make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said unto the people, or said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, and thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thou cloud standeth over them, 
and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring the people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore has he slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. This is a pretty heady thing that Moses has been offered. When the Lord says, I'll do away with them and start over with you. That would be a, a place that Moses would have and hold that no one would ever be able to match up to or measure up to. But Moses isn't interested in his own name. He's not interested in, in God starting over with him. He's interested in the Lord showing himself, not just as the God of power, but to use his power to pardon the people and forgive them, forgive their sin. Moses knows what this means. He knows the children of Israel are, are not going to take the promised land. What he knew beyond that, we don't exactly know. But he stands in the gap for the benefit of the people when he asks the Lord to pardon all of Israel. Verse 20, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to my word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. This phrase, as truly as I live, I overlooked this phrase for many years because I thought God was just being poetic when he was making certain statements. But this means something. Where he says, as truly as I live, we have to identify what is God referring to. Well, how does God live? There are two outstanding characteristics of God, or main outstanding characteristics of God. I'm sure we could find more if we looked for them. But two things are immediate, immediately identified as how God lives. He lives unchangingly, and he lives eternally. So when he says, as truly as I live, he's laying down an ordinance that will never change. It'll never become old. It'll never be outdated. It is an eternal and unchanging law of God. And here he says, the first time he says it, as truly as I live, the unchanging and eternal law or principle of God, he said, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times. Ten times refers to the ten spies. They were in agreement that they couldn't take the land, that God wasn't strong enough, powerful enough to bring the promised land into their possession. So God talks about that in terms of being tempted ten times and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. 
but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherein he went and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard thy murmurings, or heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Verse 28 is a very important verse. Say unto them, here's God telling Moses what to say. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord. Here's this same principle again. He's about to identify an eternal and unchanging law or ordinance of God. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. God creates an unchanging and eternal law. Actually, it's already been in effect, but he identifies specifically to the children of Israel what that unchanging and eternal law is. And that unchanging and eternal law is still in effect today, and it simply is this. God deals with us according to the words that we speak. We summarize this in Mark eleven twenty three to say that you can have what you say and you will have what you say. Now look at how fear has played a, played a major role in the, the life of the nation of Israel. God's will was, them, was for them to come to the promised land, enter into it. He would deliver the cities into the hands of his people one by one exactly the same way that it happens 40 years into the future when Joshua has become the leader of the children of Israel. But God has to have faith on the part of his people. He has to have faith on your part and on mine in order for us to realize and experience the things that he has said in his word are ours. It's not, just en it's not enough to just know that the will of God is for something to take place. We have to take hold of it. And remember Jesus said, defining this God kind of faith in Mark eleven twenty three, he said, whosoever shall say unto the mountain, here's the law of God that Jesus is reiterating, whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Here's the eternal and unchanging law of God that still works in Jesus' day and it still works in our day too. Folks, the devil doesn't have anything to use except for fear. The devil doesn't have any tools, any weapons to use other than fear. And he utilizes fear masterfully because if he can get the majority of people operating in fear, then he can influence them to change a lot of things. We see this in where the, the coronavirus thing is concerned. We've got people in different walks of life, whether it's in the medical community or whether it's in the media, where people are making guesses at how many people are going to die through this coronavirus thing. They, they're forecasting 
They're projecting. They've created models. But they can't look into the future and tell what specific numbers to make the models reflect. Now we've got certain things that are being said over the last couple of days that it looks like it's not going to be as bad as they projected it to be. Well, thank God, I hope that to be true. And however many people wind up dying over this thing is too many, whatever the number is. People are losing loved ones. But the fear that people are operating in, the fear that you can see and feel around you when you go into the stores, the uncertainty of the situation under which we're living at the present time, those are the tools of the devil. Those are the things that the devil will use, the fear that he will use to try to change everything about our lives. One of the things that has become startlingly real to me is how quickly things that we thought were solid and stable can be turned on its head. One of the things Jesus said about the last days, talking about the end of time, he said men's hearts will fail because of fear. But he told his disciples that by patience they possess their souls. We're going to have to learn to stand against fear. Now we could talk about other examples for example, we could go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, I believe it is, and talk about the story of David and Goliath. All of Israel was paralyzed because of one man, one giant, making threats against Israel. The armies of Israel were frozen in place until David comes. And gets the king's permission to go out against Goliath in battle. Now folks, I know that there's a lot of the working of God's will relative to David and the battle against Goliath. I know that it was instrumental in him becoming the king of Israel some 13, maybe 15 years later. But David's not the only one that could have defeated Goliath. He was just the only one that had developed his relationship and his trust in the Lord through the, the killing of the lion and the bear while he was operating as a shepherd. But if anybody else had gained the same confidence, had used their time in the same way that David had, they could have defeated Goliath too. David wasn't the only one that God was with. He was the only one that developed his trust and his confidence in the Lord. By gaining victories over the lion and the bear while he was operating as a shepherd. But Goliath's words, Goliath's threats created such a fear in the armies of Israel that they became paralyzed. There's another story that the Bible recounts for us about how that when Hezekiah became king, 
Assyria was the world power at that time. And the Assyrian king sent one of his officers to deal with the Israel problem. And this guy comes down into Israel. He stands in a place where the children of Israel are congregated. And he threatens the people. And he says things like, you know all the people that we have conquered. Talking about how Syria has conquered. They cried unto their gods too. But we still took them captive. What makes you think that your God will do any more for you than their gods did for them? And this goes on for some period of time so that the hearts of the children of Israel were just melting. It created such a hopelessness environment that when Hezekiah goes to the Lord and prays about it, God very simply says, don't worry about this guy or the things that he says. He says, I will cause him to hear a rumor and he will depart for his own land and they will die there. And that's exactly what happened. He heard a false report about somebody else stirring up trouble against the Assyrians or rebelling against the Assyrians. And so he left Israel and went to find out what was going on at this other place. And on his way, he was killed by his own people. The devil using fear is not a new tactic. But everything that the devil threatens us, it never turns out to be as bad as he says it is going to be. Let me show you one other example of conquering fear that I think is important for us to see. And that's in Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. It says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Jesus had sent them ahead in a boat, and now he's coming to catch up to them. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. God always shows up with the same greeting. Don't be afraid. Fear not. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore did thou doubt? And when they were come to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now, I'm not sure that if they recognized that Jesus was the Son of God because he's walking on the water or because the storm ceased. But one or the other, or maybe a combination of the two, caused them to recognize that he is the Son of God. Now, folks, notice what happened with Peter. First of all, Peter is of an adventurous spirit that I think God wants all of us to have. It wasn't good enough for Peter to just watch Jesus walk on the water. He wanted some of that for himself. 
And it's also interesting, encouraging to recognize that Jesus did not say, Peter, don't be just stupid. Nobody can do this but me. Instead, Jesus said one word, and there was sufficient power in that one word to perform the miracle like nobody has ever seen before. Jesus said, come. And Peter was come down out of the ship, and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. He's experiencing a miracle. But when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and that fear caused him to sink. Fear is designed to paralyze us, folks. Now, there's a lot of beautiful and poetic characteristics that we could add to this story, talking about how important it is to keep our eyes on Jesus, and that's certainly true. But there's one thing that Jesus said to Peter. He said, come. When the wind blew a wave up and, sat and soaked Peter, I, I guess that's what he's talking about when he saw the wind boisterous. He, he must be seeing firsthand how rough the seas were. And he allowed whatever he saw to stir fear in his heart. Now, it's important what we think. Renewing our mind to the truth is of utmost importance. But folks, I would submit to you that Peter had to do one and only one thing to continue walking on the water to Jesus, and that was to keep coming. When Jesus said, come, the only thing that could override the power that Peter was already experiencing was if Peter stopped coming toward Jesus. It made him stand still. His fear made him stop walking and to stand still. And that's when he began to sink. Now I'm amused at the Bible talking about him beginning to sink. I've, I've always experienced sinking as an instantaneous thing. But he begins to sink. In other words, his faith left him by degrees. Fear overtook his faith. And his faith left him by degree. Folks, here's the overriding thought that I want you to have from this message tonight. And that is, fear is what makes things impossible. Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes. Fear is the thing that makes things impossible. Jesus doesn't make a big deal out of overriding physical laws when he's walking on the water. He doesn't start shouting out as he gets closer saying, hey guys, look at me. It was the most natural thing in the world for Jesus to override the physical laws of nature when it was necessary to minister to or to benefit somebody else. Jesus simply does what he needs to do since he sent his disciples ahead in the ship. And that is to catch up with them. And Peter, 
takes advantage of the power of God that's in every single word that Jesus spoke. And once Jesus said, come, then the same laws of nature, the same physical laws of nature that Jesus is overriding, Peter now has the ability and the authority to override him too. Now, did he know what he was doing? Not a chance. Did he know what to expect? Not a chance. How does the water become solid under his feet? I'm sure he, he didn't kind of have enough of an education to know if there is enough of an education to explain that. He didn't know and he didn't need to know. The only thing that he needed to know is what Jesus said. And when Jesus said, come, he came. And he experienced a miracle unlike pretty much any other miracle that there is until he let fear make it impossible for him to stand on the water. Fear is what makes things impossible. But Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes. Let me return to what the scripture we started with, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with thee. Thank God he's with us. Thank God he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Thank God there's nothing we can do to keep him from being with us because he lives in us too. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. Don't be broken down. Don't be fearful. Don't be confounded. Don't wonder what are we going to do next because he is our God. And when we feel weak, he said he'll strengthen us. When we feel helpless, he said he'll help us. When we feel unworthy, he said he will uphold us with the right hand of his righteousness. And folks, that will never, ever come to an end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to live in these last days. There are times of uncertainty for the world, certainly. But there are times of glory for the church. Because we know whom we have believed in. We know your word. And that which you have declared to be true. And that which you have declared us to be. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to call things that be not as though they are. We're not worried about the economy. We're not worried about viruses or sicknesses or diseases of any type. For Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. And Father, because we're tithers, we thank you that the windows of heaven are opened unto us. No matter what happens to the economy, no matter what happens to the stock market, we thank you that you're on our side. And because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, we'll never be begging for bread. We'll never have to do without because you are on our side. Thank you, Father, for guiding us into all the reality of the, of the things that belong to us, 
because we're in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You guide us into all truth, all reality. Show us how to live in these last days, Father. Holy Spirit, quicken us according to the word of God and show us things to come that we might see and know how to conduct ourselves and handle ourselves in these perilous times. Father, we refuse to fear. Therefore, oppression is far from us. And terror cannot come nigh unto us. Because we are established in your righteousness. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against us in judgment we do condemn. This is our heritage as children of God. And our righteousness is of you. Thank you Father for seeing us through. Thank you for the peace of God that holds us steady as we keep our minds on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in tonight, folks. I hope you join us this Easter Sunday morning at 930.